former I Hate School Rebel and current doctoral student in education. Yeah, you could say I didn't always fit neatly into the box that is mainstream learning. CEO of Allie would do really well if she could just apply herself or just stop talking long enough to hear a lesson. Spoiler alert, working with your brain instead of against your brain is a literal game changer. I'm your host, Allie, and I'm a mom of three, clinical director, therapist, and entrepreneur. For over a decade, I've supported neurodivergent kids and their parents and educators as they navigate, advocate for, and celebrate neurodiversity within a system that desperately needs to pivot. I'm driven by the desire to do so much better for today's kids by empowering kids, educators, parents, leaders, and administrators to turn outdated practices on their head, to lead with science, cultivate curiosity, and embrace diversity. Come for the parenting hacks and teaching strategies and stay for the unfiltered, feather-ruffling, unapologetic candor that got me in trouble back in grade school. In each episode, I'll explore issues inspired by my practice and real-life experiences where, of course, science drives. All right, friends. All right, here we go. We're all set up. Recording on all the devices. Okay, here we go. So, wow, it's been a hot minute, um, but we're back. And what we're going to talk about today is it's some good stuff. And if you are a regular listener to this podcast, then you already know that we love to talk about neurodiversity affirming practices and we love to talk about neurodiversity, your brain, how your brain affects your development, your learning, your relationships, all the good things. So when I am working with parents, with teachers, with therapists, a common thing, theme, question that comes up is how do I target impulsivity in my ADHD kiddo, client, self, right? How do I, you know, in a way that is neurodiversity affirming, right? I'm not trying to shut down the impulsivity, but how do I work with it and harness the power and the goodness that can come from an ADHD brain in acknowledgement of, you know, that impulsivity? How do I work with it, not against it, right? So there are some strategies that I typically go to when it comes to satisfying both the needs of the therapist, the educator, the parent, and then also satisfying, you know, more importantly, frankly, the needs of the kids, right? How do we provide them with what they need in order for their brain to know the order of things, right? To feel like there's order in the chaos, so a couple of strategies that I really like. Okay, here's the first one. So this one, honestly, this is simple, but it makes a huge difference. The schedule should be displayed and referenced consistently, okay? And it seems, this seems like a no-brainer, right? Teachers often have, you know, a schedule or something that they use to structure their day from a lesson plan to, you know, an alarm on their phone that says when each period is over or, you know, parents have their to-do list in their phone or their reminders set in their phone when they need to pick up the kid, do all the things, right? So as grown-ups, for some of us as neurodivergent grown-ups who are trying to do all the things and also work with our brains as well, and for some of us, you know, who are not neurodivergent grown-ups, just being grown-ups and having so many balls in the air, the idea of having a schedule is something that comes kind of naturally. And this is something that we can do for our kids, for our ADHD kids, but honestly, 
for all of our kids, to really help them understand the order of things, right? The predictability is there, the routine is there. Um, And it's not to say that we have to be a slave to the schedule, of course, you know, things are gonna come up and we're gonna have to learn to be flexible and frankly, that's a great learning moment too. But when we rely on a schedule, as an anchor for our day can be really helpful when it comes to managing and getting ahead of impulsivity that might come or at least might be you know intensified by not knowing what's coming next right it might feel more impulsive or more anxious or more willing to grab and get if i'm not quite sure when the next time i'll have access is or what's coming next or generally you know where i am in time and space so your schedule should clearly outline you know the order of go, of course, but also, you know, your break times, your social times, your body movement, body breaks, whatever you call them, all of those times, right? So your schedule, your daily anchor is a good way to provide the predictability and sort of stability, but also to let your student, your client, your kid, yourself, frankly, know, you know, what's coming up next. And I mean, if you are you know, wise, if you are a creative and motivated and, you know, in the know, educator, teacher, therapist, parent, then you already know that within your daily schedule, you want to be embedding things that are motivating because why would any kid, never mind an ADHD kid who struggles with motivation, any kid be motivated to do all of these things on the to-do list if there wasn't some some payout at some point. And I'm not talking about a sticker chart or a reinforcement system. I'm just talking about things that are going to increase their buy-in. Like, would you just do all of the shitty things on your to-do list if you didn't throw in a, you know, walk outside, call your best friend, all of these things that are naturally occurring, you know, situations, things, activities that we, you know, put in our own day as grown-ups, even if it's just like, you know, if you smoke, a smoke break. I don't encourage smoking, but that idea of a smoke break, right? Something that you do after something big is motivating, right? It helps you get through the task. So your metaphorical smoke break, right, can be anything that is, you know, going to help you reset, that is going to, you know, a walk, fresh air, movement, a snack, whatever it is, right? These are things that that are routine in your day, but also things that are enjoyable for you. Um, and when you are putting them in your schedule, I also want to remind you that these things are not necessarily contingent upon completion of, you know, the activities that come before them to a certain standard, right? We're not using these breaks or these social times or whatever they are as a reinforcer, strictly speaking, right? They're not contingent upon it. Um, They're non-contingent, right? So let's say at three o'clock, regardless of how far we've gotten in our math, we're gonna take a break. Why is that important for kids that are impulsive or that have ADHD? I'll tell you. So there's a couple things. The first is that yes, of course, we wanna motivate we want to motivate behavior, right? So there are there is a time and place for contingent access to things. So, you know, when you do your homework, then you can have iPad, all of these things, right? Of course, if you've been listening to this podcast before or you've, you know, watched my YouTube videos or you've come to a workshop, you already know that I am all for motivating, right? Motivational systems. But what I am also for is non-contingent opportunities to access downtime, breaks, snacks, movement, all of these things that we just need to nourish ourselves and to be able to focus and learn and grow and thrive that should not be contingent on performance at a certain standard. It's not if you do 30, you know, math questions, then you get to have a drink of water. No, water is non-contingent, right? You might not be able to have it right now because we're doing something, but you can have it at this other predetermined time. You follow? Okay. So you get it. 
daily schedule, super, super important. Display it, reference it often, embed those opportunities for breaks to just step away from whatever the task at hand is. Big, big game changer for kids with ADHD. Okay, the next thing. I want you to be overt about the rules, okay? What does that mean? It means that we want to be spelling out for certainty what is going to be expected or what is expectation in a particular setting. So we don't want to be in a situation, don't, where we are saying, oh, sorry, you can't, you can't do that. Oh, sorry, you know, keep your, keep your chair legs on the ground. Oh, sorry, don't lean back in your chair. Oh, sorry, don't tap your pencil. Oh, sorry, don't speak out unless, you know, you raise your hand or whatever it is, depending on the context, right? School, soccer, they all have different rules. So you want to be overt about the rules before they're broken. Of course, you know, I'm not saying you're not going to provide reminders if rules are broken, right? You know, four, we used to say, um, what did we say in the, when I was teaching? We used to say four on the floor. Four on the floor was a prompt that we would often use for our kids who were a little bit, you know, hyperactive or, you know, motor active. Um, and they would rock in their chairs, right? So we would say four on the floor as a prompt that they needed to keep all four chair legs on the floor. But that's okay, right? That's a prompt. That's a redirection. But what you're not doing is waiting to talk about the rule of four on the floor until there's only two on the floor or three on the floor. Do you see what I'm saying? You want to be overt about the rules and reference them before they're broken. This is huge. So let's say you're going, I don't know, to the bathroom with your class, to the playground, to a social gathering with your kids, you know, what are the rules and expectations? Don't assume that they're going to know, you know, the order of go, the, you know, the rules of the game, okay? They don't have the background knowledge that we have as adults. We need to prescribe, right? Prescribe the rules, be overt about them, make them reasonable, make them, you know, concrete, not, you know, sort of abstract and fluffy. Um, So, you know, what are the rules in this classroom? Can you leave this learning area? If we're doing a center activity, if we're having carpet time, calendar time, if we're at home and it's homework time and we're at the dining room table, what are the rules when we're doing homework? Can you leave anytime you want? Do you need to say something? If you're at the kitchen table, do you need to ask to be excused? You know, what are the rules? Be overt and mention them before they're broken so that when you do come in with a prompt or a redirection, like four on the floor, it's not the first time they're hearing about it. Now, you know, inevitably whenever I say something like this parents are going to say or you know more often than parents teachers say well we talk about the rules every day of course you know why do I have to say it every day they know that it's four on the floor of course right of course we talk about it every day but yes still we have to reference it before it's broken sometimes every day and in particular for our kids who have working memory issues right why not provide them that prompt before they need it right that um, opportunity to review the rules before they're broken so that hopefully we have a little more success right they know how to predict the outcome of their actions really really important okay and when you're doing that, you're going to be out, you're overtly referencing your rules and also clearly outlining those contingencies that are in place, in particular when it comes to if a rule is broken, right? We really want to be clear about if you break the rule, then what's going to happen, right? What is it going to be? If you can't keep four on the floor, then you might have to sit on, I don't know, the floor. You might have to sit on a bench because you can't rock. You might have to sit on whatever it is that matches the situation, right? If you can't keep your hands to yourself, what do you need to do? Maybe you'll need to clasp your hands together. If you can't keep your hands to yourself, maybe you'll need to put your hands in your pocket. What is the if-then contingency here, okay? We need to make sure 
that when we're current, you know, uh, constantly referencing our rules, that we are mentioning these if-then contingencies, right? They need to know what's at stake if a rule is broken. And it's really important that the if-then contingency makes sense, right? I'm not going to take away your recess if you rock on a chair. That seems really silly. That doesn't make logical sense, right? If you rock in your chair, then I'm going to take away your recess is a, a, a flawed application of your if-then for a couple reasons. So let's unpack it. Number one, okay? It doesn't match. It doesn't, the consequence doesn't match the rule that was broken. Let's just say, hypothetically, I'm rocking in my chair. Stands to reason, I need a little more movement. I'm not getting movement, right? Does it then make sense to say, if you break the rule, which is a clearly you know agreed upon rule, then you don't get to have movement? That seems really silly and counterintuitive because what's going to happen is this vicious cycle of no matter how many times you are overt about the rules and no matter how many times you reference your if-then contingency, your kiddo is hyperactive and is unable to, you know, stop that motor movement. So how about we frame it in a way, you know, that provides an overt rule, you know, four on the floor, and then clearly provides an if-then contingency for if the rule is broken but in a way that matches the kiddo's needs. So if you do not put four on the floor, then you will need to sit on a wiggle cushion. If you do not sit, for, um, if you do not keep four on the floor, then I will give you a rubber band, uh, you know, the TheraBands that go on the bottom of the, um, the desks or the chairs, and that can give you something safe to sort of flick your feet at and, and provide a bit of input. If you whatever, can't meet this expectation safe, uh, safely, then I'm going to give you something that allows you to meet that sensory need in a way that is still going to be safe, right? Not, I'm going to then take something away down the line that is probably going to put us in this vicious, vicious cycle. And I know there's at least one person who is saying, okay, but, but Allie, you know, that sensory accommodation, that TheraBand, that wiggle seat, that's not punishment. That's not, that's not going to be punitive. And, and the question here is number one, well, punishment is, is anything that occurs after the behavior that is that inc- that decreases the likelihood of that behavior happening again. So, you know, does it decrease the likelihood of it happening again? You know, possibly, right? So I'm, I'm not going to argue the semantics of punishment. But here's the thing. If you provide that TheraBand contingent on them seeing, on you seeing, you know, hyperactivity, are you meeting their need? Yes. Are you ensuring safety? Yes. Are you providing them a safe outlet for them to meet their sensory need within the context of your rules? Yes. So do we care if what we're implementing is not punitive? No. I mean, I don't care. Um, I'm, not, I'm not here to wag my finger at someone and say, you shouldn't do that. You broke the rule. I'm here to give them a safe way to meet their sensory needs. And in this particular situation, there's no doubt in my mind that four on the floor or rocking in your chair is aimed at some sensory stimulation, right? I mean, there's, of course, there can be other controlling variables too. They could be looking for attention. They could be looking for other things as well. But in any event, I'm going to have to give a lot less attention if this kiddo is getting sensory feedback in a way that is safe and appropriate and falls within the context of my rules. Okay, I did the thing where I go on a tangent, but I hope you understand. I hope this all makes sense to you. All right, the next thing that I want to talk a little bit about in terms of impulsivity, ADHD at home, at school, the goods. Um, There is a tendency when it comes to impulsiveness to almost, it's, it's, I don't want to call it a compulsion, but it feels very compulsive. It feels like you just need to get out the thought. So impulsivity, right, by definition, is difficult to sort of 
rein in, I guess. Um, you know, you might grab, you might blurt, you might these kinds of things, right? When you're feeling impulsive. So when you're teaching a lesson, when you're engaged in, you know, learning homework or even a conversation, um, these ideas that can be almost, you know, like, it's like they're jumping out of me. I need to share these ideas, right? I'm, I'm compelled to share these ideas. I like that better, compelled. It's not so much a compulsion, but I'm, I'm compelled, right? There's, it's not necessarily, you know, an obsessive compulsive thing, but it is something I feel really compelled and perhaps even, you know, better motivated, right, to share. So, of course, you know, in a lesson, in learning, in you know, conversation, this can be tricky, right? Because, you know, unless you're the host of a podcast, you don't regularly just sort of brain dump and info dump on someone without having to take a breath, right? So the idea that we need to teach and support our ADHD kiddos in navigating these sort of things that they need to say, the, you know, the, the blurting that sometimes happens in the class, um, you know, really is that, is that sort of one of the core things that we need to be thinking about when we're teaching them how to participate meaningfully in, and I say meaningfully with like big air quotes, cause I know that that's, you know, what's meaningful is, is, you know, not exactly agreed upon universally. Um, but regardless how to meaningfully, um, air quotes, participate in a lesson, right? How to meaningfully participate in a conversation, how to have reciprocity, right? Back and forth, um, engagement and and these impulsive thoughts and things that we want to share that that we're compelled to share can get in the way because you know we feel the urge to say something perhaps and interrupt someone or we feel the urge to um you know brain dump in a way that doesn't allow somebody else to get a word in edgewise and that can be of course aversive for other people stressful challenging doesn't support reciprocity and while reciprocity may not need to be at the core of, of every social exchange and in particular with you know neurodivergent folks who may be more um drawn to conversations that are sort of one person info dumps and the other listens and the other person info dumps and then their the, you know, partner listens um for the most part we do need to have the skill of that reciprocity and that ability to engage in back and forth so in class and therapy and all of these interactions we have i like to use you know some way of you know giving an ADHD kiddo an opportunity to get it out without interrupting the flow of the lesson for the teacher because as I'm sure you can imagine it's quite distracting for a teacher who's trying to give a lesson about I don't know the periodic table and you know the teacher says something that reminds a student about something they're really passionate about and you know they're blurting they're blurting they have a thought you know there's one you know sentence from the teacher triggers a thought in the student and and it just kind of goes back and forth and, and not in a mutually reciprocal way, right? And this can be frustrating. So the idea of a blurt book or a notebook or post-its or something where we teach our kiddos that their ideas are really important and that they should be written down and saved for the right moment, right? <clears throat> it allows them to get it out, the thought, um, without interrupting the flow of the lesson. So what I might do is put a couple post-its, you know, along sort of the side of a student's desk and, and give them a pencil and say, you know, when you have a thought that you just feel like you're compelled to share, if it's not the right time, or if you raise your hand and your teacher kind of gives you this the signal, you know, the one minute single signal or the wait signal, you can write it down. And what that does is it, it validates that 
whatever they want to share is important, number one. And number two, it ensures that they don't forget, right? Because we're, we have this, that we're compelled to share this really cool idea. And, you know, we're in, in, in doing this, we're looking for social connection. We're looking for, you know, engagement. We're looking to share our ideas. And that's all really important. And we don't want to put that on extinction or stop that, right? Um, on the other hand, if we, you know, are constantly told, wait, not yet, not yet. Um, and we have a working memory, you know, deficit, which is really common in kids with ADHD. We might, number one, you know, it's punitive and and it's punishing and aversive to be constantly told to wait. And number two, we might actually forget what we were going to say. And then when it is time to come back to us and it's like, okay, thanks for waiting. What did you want to say? We're like, oh, I forgot. Right. And that can be aversive in and of itself. And then it perpetuates this cycle of just blurting it because if I don't say it now, I might forget, you know, say it now or it's gone. Um, so giving them somewhere to write that down during a lesson, during a, um, even during a movie or during any kind of situation where, you know, it is more, the expectation is more that you're listening and waiting for a cue to provide your insight. Like for example, to raise your hand or, you know, if a teacher's reading aloud or something like that. Um, so yes, a blurt book is sort of what I call it, or, you know, post-its on your desk or even just a piece of paper that allows you to write down your thoughts. Sometimes these thoughts or questions are going to be about the material, you know, that you're studying. And sometimes they're just going to sort of, it's going to be like a domino effect where something or some topic triggers another thought, which triggers another, which triggers another. And it's like a search bar, right? And suddenly, you, you know, really want to tell your teachers and your peers about what you did on the weekend, but it's not exactly directly related to the periodic table. So, you know, we'll, we'll circle back to that. Um, so again, just giving them that opportunity to write it down, to validate that what they want to share is super meaningful and important and we love it and we want to hear it. Um, and then of course, addressing the working memory issue, um, which is, you know, something that, uh, something that a lot of folks with ADHD can relate to in terms of a struggle. Um, Okay, so the next thing I want to talk about, and forgive me here because I am kind of jumping around a little bit, but it is uh, it, it is with some intention because um, I'm trying to hit sort of a lot of different domains that uh, can be challenging for impulsivity in particular. Um, I, I want it. I want you you to get into the habit of explicitly teaching expectations when it comes to social situations. So that can be anything from assessing body cues. Um, to, um, you know, assessing tone and, and delivery. And I, I like to start with body cues because it's, it's, it's objective. You can see it, right? You can, you can point to something and say, what is she doing with her hand? What does that mean? I am pointing. What does that mean? What am I pointing at? Right. I am, my arms are crossed. You know, what does that mean? All of these things, right? Because all of these body cues impact social situations and how we perceive them. So for example, um, a classic example is like, you know, mom's on the phone and um, kiddo, ADHD kiddo's feeling a little bit impulsive in the moment, right? And comes in and just really needs to say something to mom in that moment right now. Um, so starts talking right away, right? It's just brain dumping. What's the thing that they want to share? Um, before you know it, right? Your mom, you're on the phone, you look over, there are three sentences into, you know, a lengthy statement or a lengthy question or a lengthy whatever um, reiteration of a story. And you're like, sorry, what were you, were you talking to me? Um, and, and that's problematic for a lot of reasons, of course, right? Because they come in and, you know, kiddo comes in and expects to have full undivided attention, but mom's on the phone um, or doing something else on the computer, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, kiddo doesn't pick up on that and then gets right into the story. And then before mom knows it, she's like, sorry, what? I, 
rewind, right? And then that can be stressful and aversive and frustrating for the kiddo. So before we get to the point where this kiddo is constantly being told, wait, what? I wasn't listening, right? Which can be devaluing and and challenging. Um, Let's teach them to identify the body cues of their communication partner. So before I even say, wait a minute, rewind, I didn't hear any of that, I might say something like, hmm, when you walked in the room, what was I doing? Oh, I don't know. Okay, well, let's be a detective, right? And and let's practice looking to see what our communication partner is doing before we initiate that conversation, right? I'll tell you what I was doing. I was on the phone or I was texting or I was on Instagram or whatever I was doing and you can tell because I was and then what was I doing right was I holding the phone to my ear was I scrolling were my eyes looking at something show those body cues that are going to help the kiddo understand what you're doing and then from there it's like okay so what does my body language or my body cues tell you about whether I'm ready to start having this sort of exchange of information, this conversation. What does my body, what do my body cues tell you about whether I'm ready to be a listener, right? Depending on your kid's age, you'll modify. If I'm looking at my phone and I'm scrolling and my eyes are down and you come in and you start talking to me and you're three sentences in before I look up, does that tell you I'm ready for it, right? Maybe not. If you come into a room and I'm sleeping, right? And you don't notice, you don't, you know, you're not sort of aware of what's happening around you and you're having a whole conversation with me in a story then you look up and I'm sleeping right am I ready am I ready to be uh you know in a communication exchange with you am I ready to be a listener right maybe not you know if you walk into the room and I immediately make eye contact with you and greet you and say hey you know how's it going whatever am I ready at that point probably right so how do my body cues help you understand or know or even just assess if I'm going to be ready to be a listener for you in this moment. And this is really important because these body cues are concrete and they're going to, if you teach this in advance and then reference it consistently, because you're going to have, if you have an impulsive kiddo, they're going to forget to look at your body cues. But if you've had this this lesson, right, this naturally occurring lesson before where you've referenced body cues and you've had this conversation where you've labeled the idea of a listener and being ready, not ready, all of these things, when you come back to it at the end of the day, it comes down to a deficit in um, them assessing the environment, not necessarily a deficit that's intrinsic to them. It's not what I have to say isn't important so you weren't paying attention, right? No, it's not that. It's that, you know, you you forgot to assess the environment to see if I was a ready listener for you. Um, and we can teach that skill, right? More than we can sometimes teach the ability to sort of, you know, hold back when you're feeling impulsive. Uh, but if we teach them these steps beforehand, you know, we increase the likelihood that they're going to be met with success when they go out into various different environments, a bank, you know, their boss's office, their teacher's office, you know, it's sometimes as simple as knocking on a door and waiting, right, for that invitation for someone who's ready to be a listener. And sometimes it's more subtle than that, like tapping someone on a shoulder or saying, excuse me, or, you know, other things that are more nuanced when I may be in a room by myself, um, just, you know, just, air quotes scrolling on social media or whatever it is um and and then it may be more subtle we may need a you know a different way to see you know excuse me mom or do you have a moment whatever it is right so depending on the context of course there are different ways that we might approach looking at body cues and how we might once we've assessed the body cues figure out okay 
body cues are telling me she might not be ready to be a listener. How could I get her attention in a way that lets her know I'm, you know, waiting for her to listen? Uh, or, you know, on the other hand, body cues are telling me she's ready to be a listener. Um, you know, let's let's get right into it. Um, and again, this is going to be tricky because we're coming in hot in these situations, right? We're coming in with high, high motivation to share. Um, and you know that that you know taking a second and assessing the environment is often challenging when we are feeling a little impulsive. Um, but all the more reason to you know work on that skill consistently, um, including when we're not feeling impulsive, just generally um, throughout sort of our our day and. And, and you know even reflecting and modeling that when we come into our kiddos room if they're doing something if they're playing how can we model that we're assessing their body cues you know do we call their name and wait for a sort of shared you know joint attention shared gaze shared eye contact depending on your kid um you know do we approach them and and ask for a high five what, what do we do right how do we get their attention how do we how do we determine right that they're a ready listener for us and sometimes this is something that um, that parents need support in too because they may come into a room um, when your kiddo's doing something right you're they're playing a video game they're I don't know whatever absorbed in a task and, and if they're you know ADHD or even sometimes on the spectrum you know that hyper focus is, in, is just like in full swing right and we say something to them like dinner's in five minutes and then we leave the room then we come back in five minutes and we say dinner's now and then we have this huge meltdown and we're like well wait a minute I provided a transition morning I told you you know dinner's in five minutes and then it's like hmm okay well did mom make sure that kid was a listener in the situation did mom make sure that kid was ready to receive that information or did mom or dad right um do what kiddo sometimes does which is just come in info dump and then leave without that check-in and then sort of we're wondering what went wrong right um so again we're, we're referencing it when when our kiddos are, are not sort of meeting the mark, like when they're not assessing for body cues, but we're also modeling it and referencing it when we come in and, and you know, need to steal their attention for a second. Um, yeah, we're making sure that we're, we're checking in and making sure that they're a listener when we need them to be and teaching them how to make sure that we're a listener when they want us to be. A couple other things that um, I will mention before I wrap up for this episode. Um, okay, so... I, I want to make sure that when we're working with kids with ADHD, okay, all kids, but especially kids with ADHD who can be sensitive to feedback, um, I want to make sure that that feedback is both corrective and reinforcing, okay? I want you to be noticing the good things and also the things that need work, right? And being explicit in this. We tend to sort of go about our business um, when things are good, but then we provide feedback when something doesn't meet our expectation. And unfortunately, you know, this sends the wrong message. Kids with ADHD are used to getting a lot of like, whoa there feedback. Um, we want to balance that, right? Because if we don't balance that whoa there feedback or that slow down or that, you know, stop, no, don't feedback with, you know, cool, great, nice, okay, even, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be like highly reinforcing. It can just be neutral. Um, but they're gonna tune us out, right? If we only ever speak to them to correct their behavior, even if we perceive it as teaching or whatever, right? Providing boundaries, however we perceive it, however we frame it, it doesn't matter if the only way we're engaging with them um, is, or at least, I won't say the only way, I'm sure there, I'm sure 
most of us are not only engaging with corrective feedback, but if we're mostly engaging with corrective feedback, that can be really challenging, right? And when we're already really trying to work on listening as a skill, when it comes to how we interject conversations, when it comes to how we check to see if the listener is is ready to receive, if we're sending messages that we're ready to receive, all of these things, we really need to make sure that we're not only asking our kids to listen, about things that they're not doing right. This episode of Science Drives is brought to you by Magnificent Minds because we've got learning down to a science. Visit us online at magnificentminds.ca.